Welcome to More Like This, a podcast from Netflix Q, the journal that celebrates the people, ideas, and process of creating great entertainment. I'm Krista Smith. I've spent over 20 years interviewing some of the biggest names in Hollywood. And on this show, I'm bringing you fresh new perspectives from across the entertainment industry with the kind of access only Netflix can offer. In previous episodes, we've had a few guests on to talk about their work on the Academy Award-dominated film, The Trial of the Chicago 7. Today, I get to share something extra special, a town hall I helped put together. Caddy Kay, the BBC World News anchor and author of the New York Times bestseller, The Confidence Code, moderates a compelling and moving conversation around the film, activism, parallels between today and 1968, and much more. Please enjoy Aaron Sorkin, Sasha Baron Cohen, Baratunde Thurston, Jill Weinbanks, Olivia Munn, Lee Weiner, one of the remaining Chicago Seven, and Dolores Huertes, who at 90 years old is still an inspiration. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the Chicago 7 Town Hall, Voices for Change. We've got a great group of panelists with us. From the trial of the Chicago 7, Aaron Sorkin, writer and director, actor Sasha Baron Cohen, who plays Abby Hoffman, one of the real Chicago 7 activists, Lee Weiner, along with Baratunde Thurston, writer, activist and comedian, legendary activist Dolora Huerta, she's president and community organizer, Jill Weinbanks, who was a Watergate prosecutor, and Olivia Munn, actor and activist. Welcome, all of you. It's good to be here. Thanks for having us. Um, Let's start with Lee, since you were there. Of course. (laughs) Uh, You were there and you watched the movie. Tell us about what you thought of the movie, having been there in real life. Uh, The movie won my heart, and it did the work. And as it showed and demonstrated, told in ways that I hope people could understand and relate to, that responding to injustice was both necessary and possible in difficult situations, whether those situations were on the street with uh, brutal police or in a biased courtroom. That the work of politics requires and is easy to live your life up. And so I thought the movie did that in a very nice way. How did it feel watching it? I watched it a couple of times, once totally straight, once very much stoned. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the movie won my heart with mm-hmm. the thing that Sasha did and Aaron did with the replication of the news conference where Abby was asked how much it would take to give up the revolution. And he said, my life, Sasha, you did, you look, your smile looked very much like Abs. I was in the room while he was being filmed in that press conference, so very well done. The movie's timing, that is its release, could not possibly have come out in a better time. I think it gave heart, I would hope to gave heart, some folks who were out in the street before and after, it did the work. Olivia, uh, and Bar- I want to ask you the same question. I want to pick up on what Lee is saying. Bar- you, you are an activist. Uh, Baratunde, Dolores, Jill, you've all been activists too. But Olivia, let me start with you. Did it feel like it was a movie that came out at a moment where America is particularly ready 
to see this film and to see a film about the institution of protest. It definitely came out during that that moment that we're all we're all looking for some kind of guidance and trying to to see like what what comes of this. And what you see with this movie that is so important to understand, I think, is that protests are so important because they are the visual manifestations of people's needs and beliefs. And so often, especially when you're part of a marginalized community, we're told that our voice doesn't matter. And there is a lot of discourse there because they want to separate us and that keeps the people in power, um, in total power when the rest of us don't combine and use our voices together. And so this movie really, to me, showed how powerful protesting is and, um, and how we can take that movement that we're in right now and, and, and help us catapult to actual policy changes. Baratunde, was there a moment that struck you particularly from your life of activism when you're watching the movie and you thought, yes, that's, that's what activism is. That's, that resonates. The moment that I'm reflecting on right now is just being in this room, uh, particularly with Lee and Dolores. It's like an honor to be uh, sharing a virtual stage, at least with people who have been so down for so long. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I had the privilege of seeing Dolores speak a few days after the 2016 election when our feelings were so raw and she provided a salve and a healing and a perspective that helped many of us carry through for the subsequent four years. As for the movie, uh, yes, the joy reflected in the movie, the laughter, the humor, the humanity. So many times we get this image of activists as just serious, bookish, always about the work at the exclusion of their human selves. And I love the role of humor, which is such a human form of art in bringing people to life, not just their politics, their humanity too. So being able to laugh through the pain of this, which is what all people have had to do across centuries, was a really great reminder uh, of what a full human activism looks and feels like. I, I love that you said that because I thought it was funny. I thought they were, they, they were great. very, And I watched it with my 15-year-old daughter and she was laughing too. So it was a good sign that it was funny. Um, Dolores, you've spent a lifetime in community activism. In the film, there's actually quite a lot of division between the defendants. How do you get people to have a united front? How important is it for activists to have a united front? By working together, and I think in the 60s, we were all working together. Uh, the Black Panther Party, Bobby Seale, Huey Newton, uh, they were very active in helping the farm workers uh, with the great boycott in Oakland, in Chicago, and everywhere, all over the all over the country, wherever the Black Panther uh, Party was there, they were there supporting the farm workers on the great boycott. And with Tom Hayden, I mean, Tom Hayden and I were together in many, many colleges when he was organizing the students uh, to join the peace movement. And by the way, Tom Hayden was a, a little more militant than what they showed him in the movie, Okay, <laughs> just to let everybody know that. But he also, uh, very much like us in the farm workers movement, he really, really believed that we could win, win with nonviolence. Uh, the other thing is, you know, I was actually a Kennedy delegate at that convention. So I was there with the protesters in the park, but I was also there inside of the convention. And uh, what a lot of people don't know is that they had actually assigned to all of our California delegation, they assigned a policeman to each one of us. Of course, they were in plain clothes. And I had this one guy that kept following me oh, uh, everywhere I went. So I finally, I asked him, are you a cop? And he said, yes, I am. 
Uh, I mean, but that's like how paranoid they were about what was going to be happening uh, during that convention. I always had the good fortune to be with uh, Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin uh, because uh, when Nixon got inaugurated, we all joined uh, to inaugurate a pig. And we had to get some grapes, you know, to give to the pig for his inauguration uh, meal. And so we were all together then. And when I watched the movie, it was just like reliving, reliving the 60s. And I just I do want to thank uh, Aaron Sorkin and also Sasha Cohen, uh, because you did such a wonderful job in, in bringing that very strong message of uh, why protest is important, why movement is important, but also why laws are important, uh, which is one of the things that we try to say to young people out there. Yeah, we've got to march, we've got to protest, but we've got to make sure that all of these protests are actually uh, turned into laws because otherwise it's just protesting and, and it doesn't really uh, make anything permanent. Uh, but then we, uh, you know, and laws can be, uh, they have to be implemented and we can hold the people accountable. One other thing I just wanted to add that Cesar Chavez was actually in Chicago when they killed Freddie Hampton. And Cesar had a press conference uh, denouncing what the police had done when he came back to California, uh, one of the labor leaders accosted Caesar and said to him, how could you support the Black Panthers and Freddie Hampton and what they were doing? And Caesar looked at him and he said, they killed that young man in cold blood and you should have been there with me protesting what they did to Freddie Hampton. So uh, there was a, a, a lot of... Um, as we know, sacrifice of lives that happened, not only in the Black Panther movement and the Farmerca movement, but we had five martyrs also that were killed. Uh, but, you know, this is why we have to continue working. And I, when people talk about, young people say, I wish I would have been there in the 60s. I tell them, you know what? We're back with steroids, okay? <laughs> and of course, uh, this, this movie, I think, will really uh, enhance that and really inspire and motivate more people and inform and educate more people of why, you know, we have to get involved or we're going to save our country from fascism. You know, what you just said then reminds me of, I've been involved in this project for 13 years. Originally, Aaron wrote this script for Steven Spielberg. And in my first ever conversation with Aaron and Spielberg, the conclusion was, you know, you have to say, why do we want to make this movie? What are we making it for? Because the movie is a hassle. You have to get the money. It falls to pieces. This one took 13 years. And I remember saying, we want to do it to put out into the world to inspire people to go out and protest injustice. Jill, it's a courtroom drama. And the institution of the courts is almost like another character in the film. Um, and I wonder, you know, with your experience watching it, what your reaction was from the point of view of a prosecutor to watching the film. It is an amazing film. And even rewatching it uh, just recently, even the second time, it was, if it wasn't true, it would still be a great drama. But the fact that it's true makes it even more powerful. Um, it, of course, shows the problem when you have a crazy judge. And I know people think that that didn't really happen, but it did. Um, I was, I had just graduated from law school when the riots happened in Chicago and I am a Chicago. And so I was following it very closely. And then one of my classmates uh, a few years ahead of me 
was uh, working for Bill Kunstler, so I had an extra reason for following it. And I think that the film just captures the era. Um, it also shows the sexism of the era by the fact that there weren't women involved, except for possibly the undercover female police officer who um, enticed one of the defendants. Um, it, it, it really captures the drama of a trial and what it takes in combating when you are facing a judge who is so biased and who is so willing to just make people shut up, who's willing to, in an American courtroom, bind and gag one of the defendants and not give him a chance to question witnesses, something that happens oftentimes when people are unrepresented. And so it, it is a truly brilliant performance. Everything about it was wonderful. Aaron. A lot of compliments coming your way for the writing of it and the directing of it. Shortly after you filmed the riot scenes in Grant Park and on Michigan Avenue, uh, you, there were peaceful protests in Chicago after the murder of George Floyd. When you saw those on television, I mean, it really was, you know, life replicating, art replicating life again. What did you think about the parallels of what you were seeing? still happening? Uh, well, Caddy, first, let me uh, just echo what Baratunda said. It's really, um, it's an honor to just be sitting on a panel uh, with, the, with the people here. Uh, and uh, obviously I feel a particular connection to Lee. Uh, and uh, Lee, I thank you for your kind review of the film. I can't imagine liking even a little bit a movie uh, about me. Fortunately, I simply haven't accomplished enough for that to be a problem. Yes, yes. <laughs> uh, okay. As Sasha said, uh, we thought the film was plenty relevant when we were making it. Uh, you know, it, one of the reasons it took so long to make uh, was simply that the riot scenes were budget busters. Uh, right, a film like Chicago Seven isn't going to get the kind of budget that a Marvel or a DC film uh, is going to make. People were paid in coupons on this movie, um, uh, and every time a director would sit down to try to budget it, they'd get to the riots and the wheels would come off the wagon. And then Donald Trump was elected president, and he would have rallies, and there'd be a protester at the rallies, and Trump would get nostalgic about the old days when we carry that guy out of here on a stretcher. I'd like to punch him right in the face. Um, he was talking about, among other people, our guys. Um, and uh, I think, Jill, uh, it was you who mentioned how uh, they're all guys. Yes, I have been asked, who would the Chicago 7 be today? Um, and I I'm not sure that there's, that there's anyone or a group analogous uh, uh, to the Chicago 7. But what I know for sure is at least four of them would be women. Um, Trump starts running for president, starts getting nostalgic about the way we used to treat protesters. And that's when Steven Spielberg uh, said the time to make this film is now. By then I had directed for the first time a movie called Molly's Game. He said, he was pleased enough with it that he said I should direct Chicago 7 and the riots are now your problem. Uh, uh, you're gonna have to figure out a way to do it. And Lee, I have to tell you about the off-duty Chicago police officers who were playing Chicago police officers who were so happy to be cosplaying, beating up hippies in Grant Park. But with all that, 
we, we thought that the film was plenty relevant. We didn't need it to get more relevant, but it did in May, uh, last May, with the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and protests uh, in cities all over America. And in a number of those cities, those protesters being met once again by riot clubs and tear gas and being told that they were unpatriotic, un-American and anti-American. Uh, so you ask me, you know, what I thought watching uh, coverage of the protests on CNN, I thought if you just degraded the color a little bit, it would look exactly like the archival footage that we're using from 1968. Uh, uh, and then, by the way, the grand finale on January 6th, when Donald Trump stood at a microphone, Rudy Giuliani stood at a microphone, a number of people stood at a microphone and did exactly what the Chicago 7 were on trial for doing. Yeah, January 6th really makes it relevant because the very law that they were prosecuted under is a law that applies to all the people who traveled interstate to create this riot on January 6th. And it was for a purpose that was to stop government from operating, which makes it a lot worse than trying to protest the war. Um, I, I was an activist against the war even when I was at the Department of Justice. And I knew that every time I protested, there were probably undercover FBI agents who might spot me and I could lose my job. But at some point you say you have to go. It's, it's also true during Watergate. The protests that came after the Saturday night massacre made a huge difference in the outcome of that case. The, it was the huge overwhelming protest that forced Nixon to say, okay, okay, I'm gonna give you the, uh, I'll give you the tapes and I will appoint a new special prosecutor. So public protest doesn't exist anymore. Where is the counter protest to what's going on in America right now? It's not the same thing. Sending in an email doesn't do the same thing as taking to the streets. Yes, and also what happened in the summer of 2020 was literally the largest protest I think we've ever documented, certainly in the history of the US, perhaps in the history of our species. Um, and it went during a, a pandemic, no less, and people wore masks and they were socially distanced relative to the hair riots to reopen supercuts that happened a few months prior to that. So uh, I, I think people have been doing a lot of protests and also been frustrated that, at the lack of change in, in response to those as well. Sasha, you took time out um, of filming to come and do the Chicago 7 project. What was it when you read it that made you think, okay, you were filming Borat, but this was worth you spending, taking a break and coming to film this? Yes, so I had become enamored with the character of Abby Hoffman when I was 20 years old. Um, I was telling Lee before this that my undergraduate thesis was on Jewish activists in the civil rights movement in the 60s. Not perhaps something many people know. <laughs> no, Lee didn't either. That's how I'm going to send it to him afterwards. But it was, Lee was one of them, and Abby was one of them. And my thesis was really about those Jewish activists who had the cause of fighting systemic racism in the early 60s and then went on to be the embryo of the anti-Vietnam War movement. So... He was somebody that I was fascinated with from the age of 20. This is, I'm now 49, so this is almost a 30-year obsession with this character. 
That's why 13 years ago, when I heard that Spielberg was directing it and making a movie about the Chicago 7, with a certain amount of cheek, I called him up and asked him to audition. And then after quite a long process where he was worried that I'd master the accent, uh, after about three weeks, he gave me the part. And then it unfortunately fell to pieces. But in a way, it was much more fortunate. The movie should not have been made then. There wasn't really a, a reason for it to be made. There was a, a reason under Donald Trump to inspire people and inspire young people to go out, risk their lives and fight uh, systemic racism and injustice. So uh, I felt I had to stop shooting Bull Rat. It was, you know, the rest of the producers on the movie were furious with me when I said we're shutting down. And I went over to Chicago and shot with Aaron. And I didn't tell Aaron or the rest of the cast that I was shooting Bull Rat. And there was a the scenes where we're marching towards the Democratic Convention, I knew that a couple of months later, I would be undercover wearing a prosthetic mask of Donald Trump's, uh, trying to break into CPAC. So um, I was very aware <laughs> of, the, of the parallels. Your portrayal of Abby is funny. I mean, it was Abby, is that true to life? I mean, you make him, he's also fun. I mean, he's got those great, moments in the courtroom and I think that's one of the powers of the movie is that you 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 take out the the sort of uh the earnestness in some ways in moments and that's what makes it powerful well Abby Abby was hilarious and I'm sure Lee will attest to that and it wasn't coincidental I mean he was inspired by Lenny Bruce and I got hold of all the recordings that Abby had done that still were in existence. And he's a, he was a hilarious stand-up. And it felt like he was using humor to undermine the establishment. And that was his secret weapon. Absolutely correct. Abs was wonderful and funny and saw it using humor and his own body to risk against injustice. That, that's what the humor was all about. It's a lovely man. I was in New York, of course, you know, directing the great boycott for the farm workers movement. And uh, everybody was always listening to see what uh, Abby Hoffman was going to come out with because they would come out with these hilarious statements, you know, uh, making fun of the establishment. And so uh, this was like uh, keeping all of us going because the work was so hard. But you would uh, just keep an ear out and keep a watch out to see what they were going to be saying next because they were always so funny and the things that made everybody laugh. And of course, that was also when we, we had the Smothers Brothers also, you know, on television before they were taken out uh, because, of course, they were also against, against the war. But uh, humor and I think celebration really kept the movement, uh, uh, kept the spirits up because the work was so difficult. For young activists today in America watching Chicago 7, given what the country has been through over the last year, uh, would you say it's a, a movie of hope or, or, or in a sense is it a movie, is there an element of despair because it happened then and it's still happening now? I think it's both. I'm going to cheat and say yes in response to your either or question because uh, the hope is we're not alone. And you see that others have done this before. Uh, you're not so isolated. You have comrades across time. 
uh, and, and friendships across time. Even if you didn't know these people, you kind of know their souls and their spirits and they resonate with ours today. The, the downside, the harsh reality is um, we're repeating ourselves. And, you know, if you look at the aggressive police tactics displayed in the film, which reflected what happened in real life, and what very recently in our present day is acknowledged by police departments all across the country, how they overreacted with their military hardware, lack of training, lack of empathy, and overall brutality to the protests against those very things in the year of 2020. Uh, that is not a hopeful truth. It's just the truth. And I think the truth can be both hopeful um, in that resonance across time and, uh, and a bit saddening in that it, it repeats itself. Olivia, when you watched it, did you see hope or despair? To the point that was just made, it is that feeling of like things are repeating itself. And then to what Dolores was saying earlier that like, you know, there's all these protests that are happening, but then where's the real change? You know, over the last um, few weeks, myself um, and other leaders in the Asian community, we have been communicating with leaders in the black community to uh, to do something and to do um, actually a run that's happening today. And we had no idea that as we were planning this, that there would be the Atlanta spa shootings that just happened. And um, we've been screaming for help. We've been asking everyone to help us amplify this. And we've been asking how many dead bodies does it take for people to actually care? Turns out it's um, eight more. And today I'm getting flooded with pictures from New York and, um, and we're seeing this amazing amount of unity with um, Blacks, Asians, Whites, Latinx, everyone coming together. And there's this aerial view of Columbus Park. And I can't verify this, but somebody on our thread said that there was more people here than at Trump's inauguration. And that to me was just so inspiring and so hopeful. And it does take generations for this to, to happen. You know, it doesn't just happen. It's because of what Leah's done and what Dolores has done. And it's because the movie came out right when it came out. And it's what happened during Black Lives Matter. And it's all rolling into one. And so hopefully one day um, we won't have to protest for just basic human rights anymore. But it, it, it is the, collect, the collection of all of us, all of these generations together. Um, it's, it's, a, it's hopeful for that reason. Watching the movie is hopeful for that reason. But it's at the same time, you know, you're just going like, how, how many more generations do we have to go before we can actually make real lasting change? I think it's so important what you said, Olivia, about the time this will take. When I when I think like mathematically about the years of investment this country has in oppression, it's a multi-generational, multi-corporate effort <laughs> that we've been digging this hole and creating this debt that we were all born into. And it will take many generations to dig out of it. So I think the hopeful part, as you said, is, is the increasing coalition, the recognition and the idea that we're contributing our whatever generation is alive right now is contributing to that liberty and justice for all possibility. I, I just wanted to say that I, I hope that it's hopeful. Um, uh, I meant it to be hopeful. I meant it to be a Valentine to protest, uh, a, a love letter to, to courage. Um, you know, the Chicago Seven and the thousands who protested with them were in their day called unpatriotic and un-American anti-American, overly educated, weak pansies. Uh, well, they were anything but weak. They risked their lives. There was 10 years in federal prison. 
If one of them had been a world-class athlete, I have no doubt they would have risked a career as an NFL quarterback. And today it's widely accepted that the Chicago 7 and the thousands who protested with them hastened the end of a disastrous war. Um, stack that up against senators who aren't willing to risk a primary opponent and ask yourself who the patriots are. Uh, so it's my hope that um, people would leave the theater or at least their living room in this day of, uh, of Netflix uh, uh, feeling good and feeling the patriotism uh, of protest. I wanted to ask Olivia though, Olivia, the, the, the incredible rise in anti-Asian hate right now, can it all be traced back to one guy talking about COVID? The truth is that the pandemic was weaponized against Asians. And um, we have seen this astronomical uprise, um, uptick in attacks against our people since that has happened. And, you know, if you ask any scientist, they encourage people to use the scientific name for any virus and to not um, associate any virus with a country or place. They want leaders to use the scientific name because things like this happen. And I do believe that this uptick in hate crimes against Asians is the direct cause of the refusal to do that. I mean, it does come down to one person. It just so happens that that one person is, the, is somebody that was in the most powerful position in the entire world. I wasn't asking you the question because I doubt it. I'm asking you the question because <laughs> I find it unbelievable in the sense of, holy cow. It, um, gave, people, you know. it gave people a permission to to put out all their frustrations onto one group of people. We, the whole lockdown, we're all so frustrated. And so he, he gave permission to people to make fun of Asians, to attack Asians, to put out all their frustrations on Asian. And the thing that's just been so heartbreaking is that it just, it can't be open season on Asians right now. And he basically gave everybody a license to do that. You know, we have had the racism as part of our DNA in the United States of America, anti-Semitism, anti-Latinos. Of course, it was uh, highlighted by Donald Trump, but this is something that is ingrained in every single system uh, that we have in the United States of America. I, for one, uh, really, uh, and by the way, I'm going to be 91 years old in a couple of weeks, okay? And so I, I, lived, uh, I lived, you know, I was born right after the Depression. I lived through World War II, you know? Uh, the recession, and of course, what we're going through now. And I, myself, I think that this is a, a moment in, in our history of the United States of America that is very, very critical. I think we were very, very close to, uh, to fascism taking over the country. Uh, we have races that are in government, in police departments, uh, in our educational systems, and we've got to do a, a complete wash of, of the racism, the misogyny, the homophobia, uh, in, in our United States of America, and we've got to do it quickly. Uh, we have all of these judges that have been appointed by Trump that are uh, racist judges. And so, uh, it, I, I, but I am hopeful because I do believe that we have everything. Number one, we have the history uh, of what's happened in the United States. We've got to put that into our educational system, starting from, from kindergarten. Uh, children are not born racist. But I, I don't think that we can spare a moment and we've got to call on everybody and uh, thank God for people uh, like Seisha Cohen and, and uh, Alan Yorkin and everybody. Uh, so we can do this, but it's going to take 
uh, every single inch of our lives to do this and to get a, a corporations and government agencies and everybody. This is it. Fascism is in the United States. We have mass incarceration against people of color. And so we have to end it. We have to end it. We can do it now. Si se puede. <laughs> so, so let me just, let me get, because uh, I think this is a, a central question that was raised for me from watching the movie. And I think that is something that people have been asking about this time in America. And that's why this movie is so relevant, is are the institutions holding? And, and that was the question we asked all through Trump, right? Would, would the institutions hold? to protect American democracy. And, and again, I, it's this notion of hope and despair. Uh, do you feel, Aaron, that the institutions of, of, and I'd love to get you to weigh in on this too, Jill, the institution of uh, justice is stronger and healthier in America today than it was during that trial that you made a film of in Chicago? Uh, you know, in the film, uh, I have Abby say on the witness stand um, uh, when he's asked if he has contempt uh, for his country, uh, that he says he, uh, the institutions of our democracy are wonderful things, which right now are being uh, populated by some terrible people. Uh, I, I think we see how easy it is for our institutions to not work. Um, all, all, they are extremely user sensitive. Uh, at the beginning of the conversation, uh, Jill, you were talking about Judge Julius Hoffman and how terrible uh, a judge he is. At the end of the film, I, I throw a postscript on the screen uh, that says that in a biannual survey of Chicago trial lawyers, 87% of them gave Judge Julius Hoffman a rating of unqualified. And it's a pretty horrifying statistic. In the four years Donald Trump was president, he nominated to the federal bench three judges and the Senate confirmed three judges who were given unanimous ratings of unqualified by the American Bar Association. So that's all it takes uh, uh, for the whole thing to, to come undone. Yeah, I agree completely with what Aaron said. It is very close to disaster that has happened in the last administration when Bill Barr wrote a audition letters saying that the president couldn't be charged with obstruction, you knew that he couldn't be a fair and legitimate attorney general. We now have a wonderful attorney general who I believe will handle the insurrection and all the other issues that are facing us, uh, the violence against women and the hate crimes. I think we're in a much better shape, but it shouldn't have to depend on the quality of people. And Aaron is right, there are so many judges who were completely unqualified, who were pushed through. Um, and without a, uh, you know, if we don't get rid of the filibuster, it could happen again if the Republicans take over again. And so there's a lot that needs to be done to make us safe again and to protect us. But our democracy, the institutions are really good and we need to protect them. They are fragile and it requires, it requires people to initiate and commit to political work. Were they more fragile when you were on trial in Chicago? If they were more fragile, I, we would have taken them down. Um, we would have certainly tried. The activist speaks. Yeah. Give me, give me a place to put the lever. Um, <laughs> uh, it, look, political work 
is not uh, a simple, it's not an election. There's not a time when, oh, we won. It is a process. You do not get rid of racism or denigrating, denigrating gender norms uh, or inequities in terms of income and control um, through the best of intentions in terms of wealth of the Congress. It requires uh, people, often on the street, sometimes in the voter booth, uh, but working together, black, white, uh, Latinx, Asian, the collection, people, Americans. That's who the, that's what the institutions of this country rest on. It's not well-intended, well-appointed. Hurt, doesn't hurt. Well, for better uh, attorney generals. I think that they are more fragile now because we have a media landscape that puts people in silos. In the, in the 60s and the 70s, there were three networks and they all had the same facts. Politicians believed in bipartisanship. Politicians debated what policies should stem from an agreed set of facts. Today, we do not have that. And that's what makes us, I think, more fragile, is that people don't believe it. People who listen to Fox actually believe that there was fraud in the election, that it was stolen. People who listen to MSNBC do not believe that. And back in, in Watergate, it was Republicans who went to the president and said, we've seen the evidence and we will vote to convict you if you do not resign. That would never happen now. If there had been Fox News back in the 60s and 70s, things would have been very different. So I think we are more fragile now and need to work harder to protect democracy. Erin, I think one thing that wouldn't happen today, having seen the events of the last year, who knows, perhaps anything is possible. But I don't think we would see the scene uh, where Bobby Seale is brought in and bound and gagged in the chair. It's a really um, violent emotionally violent scene. Uh, tell us about filming it and the, the thought process that went into it, the conversations you had with Yaya around filming that scene. Sure, it's, you know, it's a harrowing moment uh, in the trial. Uh, you know, as for whether something like that is possible today, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure you're right that, that it's not possible. You know, it, it, we still do live in a world where Sheriff Joe Arpaio uh, has a certain amount of power, right? I have to believe that somewhere there's a judge, Joe Arpaio, uh, who's disseminating that kind of justice. As far as filming the scenes uh, went, I remember uh, shooting the other side of, uh, of Bobby getting bound and gagged. In other words, he's, he's dragged out of the courtroom into a room, and then in that room we have very tight shots of shackles and and uh, and a gag being put in his mouth and uh, you know him really being manhandled um uh, that day just by through a grim coincidence of scheduling happened to be the 50th anniversary of the murder of fred hampton uh that that we were shooting that we were all just kind of aware of that and i was aware of the fact that uh yaya yaya abdul mateen uh who, who plays bobby seal in the film uh, that he was surrounded by uh, a mostly white crew, 
Uh, certainly the, the four stunt people who were playing the U.S. Marshals who were uh, uh, shoving them around uh, were white. And um, uh, so at, at first I, I would kind of go to Yaya in between each take, check in, make sure he's okay, let him know, you know, okay, this next shot, you know, it's just your ankle. We're just on your ankle, slapping a handcuff on it. If you want to remove yourself mentally from the scene, uh, uh, feel free. He didn't want to. Um, uh, he wanted to be in, in that scene uh, uh, for all of it as if it would be uh, an insult to Bobby. Uh, uh, for this actor who's being paid to sit in this chair to pretend to go through what Bobby was going through, couldn't handle uh, going through it. Uh, and I also realized at that moment, maybe he doesn't want the director coming to him between each take to ask how he's doing. Uh, maybe he wants to stay in this place of abject oppression and, and humiliation. Um, so that's the answer you get when you ask me what it was like shooting that scene. Ask Yaya what it was like shooting that scene, and I think you'll get a much more interesting perspective. Sasha, what was it like for you, that scene? It was uh, heartbreaking, um, because we didn't see what happened in that room, and then we just saw Yaya brought in. And obviously, you know, at that point when I saw him, I'm playing Abby Hoffman. So I'm trying to inhabit, you know, Aaron's script and all my research, months of research. And I'm trying to see him as Abby would have done. And because of my understanding of Abby's, uh, you know, active hatred of systemic racism and actually involvement in the Black Panther Party, because I'd seen him speak at a number of... Um, uh, marches they'd had, I knew how powerful and how visceral it was for him. So, you know, when the scene was on, you're, as an actor, I'm trying to inhabit Abby Hoffman reacting to that. So it was, it was heartbreaking. I felt that connection as a viewer. And I think you know, what Yaya committed to, learning about it now, it's, it makes even more sense why it resonated from the distance of my couch to the TV screen. It's, um, it's something to talk about the resilience of our institutions and ask, you know, are they better, are they worse? And even back then, recognize it's the institution which allows something like that to happen. You know, we have our conspiracy theories today, we have our Fox News and MSNBC, but the whole nation was cool with that kind of treatment for hundreds of years, hundreds. Cool with separation of family, child separation is like in the DNA of the country. Ask the indigenous people, you know, and the immigrants and the black people who work for free all this time. And I think a scene like that, because it happened in a courtroom, it removed the veil, kind of the way COVID removed the veil of whatever story we tell ourselves about how great we are, that scene stripped away all the propaganda and you saw some of the truth the ugly truth at times and it just it hit hard it hit really hard and when you see that you're like oh the, the institutions were corrupt then too good people bad people the institution itself was rotten to allow that when i was watching that scene something that really hit me and i remember talking to um a friend of mine when we were watching it and she's white and she she was just talking about she kept saying resilience there's just so much resilience and um 
in so many black communities and Asian communities and marginalized communities. And it really stuck with me so much because she was talking about that scene in particular and just like, just the resilience. And I'm like, we keep getting credited for being resilient, but I think that's a way to, in a way to take away the spotlight from what is making us have to be so resilient. Why do we have to be so resilient? Why do we get credited for that all the time? It's the truth is that we shouldn't have to be so resilient. We should actually be able to live life a lot softer and be more, more vulnerable. We shouldn't have to be looking over our back. My mom the other day went and bought bats. I was like, mom, it's too big. First of all, the bat's taller than her. <laughs> like you can't, <laughs> and you're not, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with that bat? She's like, just in case they come for me. Cause I'm Chinese. And I'm like, mom, okay. Somebody take the bat away from her, you know, but, but the, the truth is we shouldn't have to be so resilient. You shouldn't even have to be worrying about the fact that she ought to buy a bat. Yeah. We have huge problems in our society and, and, and it's going to take documentaries. It's going to take films and narrative films uh, like the one uh, that, that was just made about the Chicago seven uh, to, uh, to cleanse uh, America. We need a healing. We need a healing and we need change and we have to erase the ignorance. And uh, again, all of us working together, we have to make it happen. Thank you. Bravo. See, Dolores, she's dressed, she's ready. She's always ready. <laughs> <laughs> always ready. Put on the old garb. <laughs> Aaron, we just have a couple of minutes left. Let me give you, since it's your film, uh, and you described this as a love letter to protest. There was a long period um, during the early part of this, this century where protests seemed to have died in America, uh, where we saw protests around the world, for example, about over the invasion of Iraq. And, and even after 2008, we saw protests all through Europe um, after the financial collapse. We didn't see protests in America. We saw them revive again under Donald Trump. Do you, do you think that protests are an institution that is still part of America and will still be part of America? Is this, I, I, I uh, hope it is. I sure I, hope. I of about a decade where I kind of thought Americans had, 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 had forgotten how to protest um, and the rest of the world was. Yeah, Donald Trump changed that, right? I mean, the, the, uh, the, the day after his inauguration, the Women's March, um, as, and as Baratunda said, uh, last spring into summer, we, we saw possibly the largest protest this country or even the world uh, has seen. Um, uh, so uh, ha has protest in America gone away? I, I hope not, because I can't think of any significant change that's happened uh, in this country, any significant move forward that's happened that wasn't preceded by protest. I want to ask each of you whether you have a a particular message, something particular that you would say to young, to America's young activists today. What what would be the 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 piece of advice that you would give them? I would say, do it now. Get out there and speak up, speak out. It does make a difference, and it has. As Aaron was just saying, there's a long history of protests leading to change in America. And that's what it's going to take. We need to speak up. And I think that the young people who have been behind the Black Lives Matter and all of the recent protests have done a remarkable job. Uh, the organizers of the Women's March, going back to that, um, have been really effective. And social media has changed how you can 
organize huge crowds and we should use those tools available to us. Well, uh, definitely get involved, get involved in political campaigns, because, uh, again, yeah. when we march and we protest, we have to elect progressive candidates, and then uh, we have to make sure that we pass the laws that we need, and then we have to hold them accountable. It's not enough to elect people. You actually have to advocate for the things that you need. So we all have to be very active. Uh, as Michael Moore says, when we wake up in the morning, you know, we wash our face, we brush our teeth, and then we call our congressman. Yeah, my piece of advice, is, it, it, there's, there's nothing like showing up. Um, uh, you know, show up. Sasha? I'm not as qualified as the rest of them to offer any advice, but um, I mean, the one thing I've just been interested in is the need to regulate these social media companies from spreading lies and undermining this, this concept of a shared truth on which democracy uh, is built on. So I think that's the challenge for the next few years. That is so important, what Sasha just said. I think that we spend so much time looking at government and law enforcement that we actually don't see the, the ones who are standing right beside us and the ones that we, we think are on our side, but really are, are part of this huge systemic problem. Um, so I echo everything that he just said, but um, also in terms of protesting, I think it's just so important for people to know that by protesting, we start to change the agenda and force debates to happen and those in power may try to ignore us but when there are more and more protesters together our voices are louder and that is the beginning of making real change my editors are sitting on my shoulder saying i should say that if you want real news do come to the bbc of course we will give you old-fashioned idea uh baritunde uh first uh, watch out for Olivia's mom. She's got a bad Bigger, I would say, uh, imagine better. Uh, it's a phrase I learned from a friend of mine, Andrew Slack, who's a great activist and creative, kind of integrates these two things together. And protests often involves objecting to something that's wrong, that's heinous, but keeping in your heart, in your mind, in your community, that image of what you want to live inside of, what's the, what's the glorious future you're fighting for? And hold on to that, because that's what's going to help us get there, not just running from the bad, but having a very clear picture of what's good. Lee, you got the first word, and you get the last word too. Look, find friends, fight injustice, understand you're not going to win very often or very quickly. But when the wins do come, they're glorious, and you celebrate with your friends that win, and you continue to try to make the world a better place. That's really all the way. That's, that's how you're your best self. It's how you're a patriot. It's how you're a citizen. Lee, thank you very much. Um, great place to leave the conversation. Lee Weiner, Jill Weinbanks, Bertrand de Thurston, Olivia Moon. Dolores Huerta, Sasha Baron Cohen, Aaron Sorkin, thank you, all of you, for joining the conversation. That's our show. Thanks for listening. You can stream The Trial of the Chicago 7 on Netflix. For more, head over to NetflixQ.com. That's NetflixQueUE.com. And follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and share. Listen in next time for more like this.